This is episode 70 of the Magic Detective Podcast. On this episode, you'll hear about the life of David Devant, England's greatest magician. That and more on this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast, your podcast home for magic history. I'm your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective, and this is episode number 70. Well, I took a week off for birthday week, my birthday, which turned out to be hardly any time off at all. In fact, my week off has turned into a month plus <laughs> away from the podcast. I discovered I am a terrible juggler. By that, I mean I'm finding it increasingly difficult to juggle multiple projects at the same time. Uh, well, a couple weekends ago, I was up in Hannibal, Missouri, performing my steampunk illusionist show. And it's been a while since I had done that show, so I needed a about a week's worth of rehearsals just to get it all down. It's uh, also major marketing time for me, so I'm designing postcards and tweaking websites and sending out emails and shooting videos and tons of stuff. And then uh, my weekend shows, uh, evening shows, are beginning to sell tickets, so I have to stay on top of that as well. All in all, it's been a lot to keep up with, but now I am back to the podcast and I've made an executive decision. With podcast number 70, the one you're listening to, we begin season four. It's funny, season one had 31 episodes. Season two had 25 episodes. Season three only had 13. And because I usually begin the new season at this time, I figured why not just start afresh? Let's go over some news really fast. First, uh, wow is all I can say for those uh, who attended the recent Magic Collectors event in Las Vegas. The photos you guys have been, guys and girls, have been taking uh, of David Copperfield's warehouse are just breathtaking. And it's so very generous of David to open all of that up to uh, the Magic Collectors. That's just, wow, that's just amazing. I understand part of uh, Ken Klosterman's collection goes up for auction at the end of October. This is announced recently. That's through Potter and Potter. Ricky Jay's collection will also be going up for auction on October 27th and 28th via Sotheby's. Uh, the Orlando Collectors Conference just happened this past weekend, so I hope you all had a great time. I wish I could have been there. David Copperfield's History of Magic book is due out at the end of the month. I'll have more on that hopefully in the next podcast. If you haven't ordered a copy yet, they are available on Amazon and on a couple other sites. Now to the feature. Today's feature was born David Whiten in London on February 22nd, 1868. We would know him by his stage name, David Devant. His family moved around a lot in his early age. In 1878, when he was a mere 10 years old, he saw his first performance of magic presented by a man named Dr. Holden. He was a local performer who had the rare treat of having performed before the Queen, Queen Victoria. According to his book, My Life of Magic, Devant was impressed with the magic, but had not yet taken hold of him as it would in a couple years. Young David had many odd jobs in his youth, he was a page boy, he ran a refreshment stand, he was a telephone operator, 
And along this journey of jobs, he also eventually became fascinated by magic. He would often practice his magic in lieu of doing his job, which got him fired or reprimanded more than once. He had local magic shops that he frequented, like Joseph Bland's Magic and Hair Prox Hours. David had a chance meeting of a magician named Casper the Great Court Conjurer who was performing in town. David discovered besides performing magic, he also had tricks that he sold. So David was there every weekend to buy something new from Casper. Then at some point, Casper made an offer that was impossible to refuse. He said, If you can get your friend, the artist, to paint a picture for me, I will show you how to get all of the secrets of magic. Actually, what he really said was, Why, I'll teach you all the blooming tricks there ever was, is, or could be. The story takes up several pages in his autobiography. Casper wanted a painting of himself performing for the queen, with the royal family responding with oohs and ahs and surprising looks on their faces. The painting was eventually done. David paid the artist, and in turn, now he could get all the secrets to magic. Well, all the secrets to magic turned out to be a copy of the book Modern Magic by Professor Hoffman and a copy of Houdin's Masterpieces. And he didn't even get the books. He just told David where to get copies, and he said, that's all the knowledge you'll ever need. David doesn't seem to be the least bit upset about this, as the information contained in the books was beyond eye-opening. His early life would benefit from three important things. One, I just mentioned, the book Modern Magic by Professor Hoffman. The next was visiting Egyptian Hall, where Masculine and Cook produced countless magical programs. The last was another book, Sleight of Hand by Edward Sachs. Here was all the education a young budding magician would need. The day eventually came when David would present his first public magic show. The year was 1885. David was a mere 17 years old. He was performing at a bazaar, a sort of outdoor fair on Kentish Town Road. He would not be performing as David Whiten, but rather as David Devant, his new stage name. Where did his name come from? According to the book Devant's Delightful Delusions by S.H. Sharp, quote, Devant decided on his very attractive stage name through seeing a painting by a French artist of David and Goliath named David Devant Goliath, which means David in front of Goliath. This caption caught his imagination, and he at once decided to adopt the name David Devant to help him to keep in front as a magician. This next story is recounted in numerous books, chief among them My Magic Life, his autobiography. David was about to present his final performance at the bazaar when he spotted two friends in the audience. Both of them were magician friends, and an elderly gentleman sat between them. David does not mention what he presented in his show, but he does say that the three gentlemen stayed following the performance. They approached him and introduced the stranger among them. The man turned out to be none other than Professor Hoffman himself. David DeVant was thrilled to meet the professor. He went on to credit him for all the material in his show and even gave him a huge pat on the back, which turned out to be so hard, he almost knocked the poor man's glasses off. And I can't really say I blame him for his enthusiasm. It was probably good that they waited until the show was over for the introductions. Nerves have a way of wreaking havoc upon a performer. Professor Hoffman was kind to the young man, stating, 
If you go on as you have begun, one day you will become a great conjurer. So we can assume he did a reasonably good job. At least he didn't get one of those so-called compliments like, well, I can say you've never been better, or the classic, your set pieces are fantastic. Years later, Professor Hoffman would write about his first meeting with DeVant in the pages of the Magician Annual, 1908-09. through He described the encounter and pointed out how pleased he was that DeVant kept a copy of Modern Magic with him. He felt that even though DeVant was a teenager at the time of their first meeting and performance, he, DeVant, did deliver a fine performance. And then he points out that when they met a second time, David DeVant had become the most popular magician in England. In his autobiography, DeVant talks a a bit about the fact that no one was doing illusions in music halls until Bautier de Colta. Bautier presented The Vanishing Lady. Now, I've done a podcast on de Colta, which is episode 31, if you want to check that out. But DeVant proceeds to give a very in-depth description of de Colta's Vanishing Lady, and it makes the modern adaptations seem like feckless knockoffs. Listen to this. Bautier walked forward with a newspaper in his hand. This he unfolded and spread out on the center of the stage. He then picked up a light, ordinary-looking chair, which, by the way, he showed on all sides, and then placed it in the center of the newspaper. He then brought a lady in, and she sat herself on the chair. Bautier proceeded to cover her up with a piece of purple silk, pinning it around her head and shoulders, dropping the rest and draping it to the floor. No part of this silk was allowed to lie outside of the newspaper. There was a pause. Bautier came down the stage, looked at the draped figure, took hold of the silk with two hands, one about the waist, one about the head, threw the silk up into the air. It seemed to leave his hands in a flash. Both woman and silk utterly disappeared. Again, the chair was lifted off the newspaper. In doing so, Bautier showed it back and forth. He then picked up the newspaper and folded it again. That's incredible. Now, the reason there's such an emphasis on Dakota and others in DeVant's life was DeVant was being educated in many different approaches to magic. He saw these illusions in Egyptian Hall. He would see countless conjurers in this iconic location, and he learned something from every act. He mentions Decolta one more time, this time in regards to the vanishing bird cage. Apparently, Decolta's cage was oblong in shape, and it was ripped off by many performers. So he created a round cage, which he held in his upright hand. And he simply tossed it upwards where it vanished. Then he tore off his coat, threw it into the audience to have it inspected. No trace of the cage could be found. Upon taking the the coat back, Decolta reproduced the cage. Again, so very different from what we see today. This was also the time when many conjurers were doing the vanishing cage and killing birds in the process. DeVant points out that Bertram, had a clever solution, he allowed the bird to fly free. Then he said, you've flown away, have you? Well, take the cage with you. And then he caused the cage to vanish. And I should point out that Robert Haller did a similar thing by having the bird fly away. Then having no use for the cage, he made it vanish. But let's get back to David DeVant. 
In his book, My Magic Life, he describes a funny incident that occurred in his early days as a magician. He wanted to present Decolta's vanishing lady, but he did not want to do it the way Decolta did, so Devant devised his own unique method. To that, he also added his own unique presentation, the highlight of which was causing the vanished lady to appear in the back of the hall or back of the theater. For this method, he would require two women that had a similar appearance. Devant describes the difficulty in finding two women that were alike. He said that sometimes he would find them, but one would have light hair and one would have dark hair. So he'd try to convince the women to either darken or lighten their hair, as the case may be. And in every case, he was turned down and likely told off. Just about that time, when he was ready to give up, he saw two very beautiful twin sisters walking down the street. They were both dressed alike and had the same hairstyles and such, but now he had a new dilemma, how to approach them. He tried many different things, even considered hiring some friends to intervene, but in the end, his frustration led him to simply stop the ladies on the street and proclaim, would you care to become vanishing ladies? <laughs> Uh, there's a pickup line if I ever heard one. And their response was something along the lines of, you crazy beep beep. And, and he quickly apologized and tried his best to explain himself. Amazingly, the women believed him, believed that he was a conjurer in need of a, uh, a woman to assist him with the trick. And they kind of fought over who would be the vanishing lady. And they told him they would only do it if they both were involved. Well, that's exactly what Devant wanted, so he hardly agreed. This next part of the story, <laughs> oh my, does it ring so true. It was true then, it's true today. After only two rehearsals, the women proclaimed, they've got it, they don't need to rehearse anymore. <laughs> and Devant struggled to get it through their heads that continual rehearsal was the only way they were truly going to be proficient at the illusion. The day came when they got it down, and their first presentation before an audience went something like this. Devant had a chair sitting upon a raised platform. He had his assistant walk into the audience and then back onto the stage so that they could see that she was a real human, not some mannequin or something. She sat in the chair. Devant covered her with a cloth and then whisked it away and she was gone. And then seconds later, the woman yelled from the back of the theater, Here I am! Truly a mind-boggling effect for the time. Everything was going well until the vanishing lady, or ladies, began receiving fan mail and gifts and proposals. One night, according to the book, the lady in the chair was covered, but when the cloth was yanked away... She was still there. And yet only seconds later, the other lady burst forth from the back of the theater to yell, Here I am! Apparently the two sisters were having a fight over some of the gifts. Eventually, Devant let the sisters go as they became more trouble than they were worth, which is why you don't really see twins anymore in magic. By 1890, he was just 22. He had already risen in the show business ranks to be working the best music halls in London and the surrounding areas. In 1893, he debuted one of his original illusions called Vice Versa. Here's a description of the effect from the book The Vance Delightful Delusions by S.H. Sharp. 
a man stood isolated in a simple cabinet which consisted of a top and bottom with curtains on the sides and standing on legs about four feet high. Around his waist was tied a long ribbon with the ends being passed out to members of the audience to hold. Upon the four curtains being simultaneously lowered by a single string and raised a few moments later, it was seen that the man had transformed into a woman. The ribbon was then cut from her waist and tossed to the audience to examine the knots. This illusion actually played a very important part in Devant's career. He was using vice versa with great success. Audiences and theater managers alike enjoyed it, so he felt it was time to step up his game and invite no less than John Neville Maskelyne to see a performance with the hopes of getting booked at the famed Egyptian Hall. Arrangements were made for Maskelyne to catch a presentation of vice versa, and to his delight, Maskelyne actually liked the illusion. However, there was a problem. John Neville Maskelyne recognized the size of the illusion was such that it would be impossible to play at Egyptian Hall, as the stage size was smaller than the venue they were currently at. If only Devant could come up with something similar that might fit into the Egyptian Hall stage. And, thus, the artist's dream illusion was born. They were both based upon a similar method, but the effect was different, and also the size of the props were smaller. Devant showed Maskelyne a prototype, he loved it, and it was built then in the Maskelyne workshop. In September of 1893, Devant debuted what would be his most popular creation, The Artist's Dream. Here's a description of the illusion from Devant's book, Secrets of My Magic. The Artist's Dream was a pretty little sketch in which an artist was discovered working on a picture of his late wife. Overtired, he covers the picture with a small curtain and falls asleep on the couch when the spirit of mercy enters mysteriously produced at the back of the stage. She approaches the picture, uncovers it, and is seen to be alive. In fact, the woman comes down and embraces her husband, then goes back and disappears in the same way. The artist wakes up and, rushing to the picture, tears it down from the easel and, turning, sees the spirit of mercy. He approaches her, but the moment he touches her, she disappears in a flash, and the artist falls dead on the stage. A very dramatic finish. Maskelyne signed Devant to a three-month contract, which would last for years eventually. Devant's wife would play the part of the woman in the artist's dream, but much to my surprise, Devant was not in the routine at all. Many routines presented at Maskelyne and Cook's Egyptian Hall were done like many playlets, so they had a script, actors, music, and the like. In this case, an actor was chosen to play the part of the artist. And considering that the artist falls asleep on a couch during the routine and doesn't really do much else, I guess that makes it okay. The next illusion I'd like to mention is a piece that Devant created way back in 1895. It's called The Birth of Flora. It began with a bowl of fire or a vase of fire. Some rose petals were then dropped into the flames then this thing turned into a huge vase of flowers, and from within the flowers, this huge mass of flowers, a woman emerged. Sounds like a very wonderful illusion, one that was uh, taken by no less than Harry Keller. In 1896, David DeVent gets involved in a new medium, 
what he called back then animated photographs, in other words, early motion pictures. He tried to purchase a machine from the Lumiere brothers, but they weren't selling. After trying to purchase machines from others, he finally settled upon a kinetoscopic machine from Mr. R.W. Paul. DeVant had to go all in on this himself, as Mr. Maskelin refused to see the lasting novelty of it. But thanks to DeVant's persistence, Egyptian Hall was the second theater in London to show animated photographs to sold-out audiences, the first exhibition being the Lumiere Brothers at the Empire Theater. The next part I found really fascinating because I know a fair amount about the history of George Melier. So listen to this. DeVant claims he sold several machines to George Melier's of the Robert Houdin Theater, and Mr. Melier's then began his business of manufacturing films and machines. DeVant further goes on to say that he was Melier's sole agent for selling his films and machines in England. This is all from DeVant's book, My Magic Life. DeVant also made films of his own that we know of, and in 1897, he was showing films by the Lumiere brothers and even Thomas Edison. According to the book DeVant's Delightful Delusions, the animated photographs was more of a side business, but a very lucrative one. It turned out to be more work than he could handle, and soon he had several troops in the provinces showing animated photographs. The time kind of came, though, when he had to choose between magic and films, and DeVant went the way of magic. The provincial tours would feature the films as well as magic, mentalism, hand shadows, and illusions. By 1898, John Neville Maskelin finally decided to get on board, so he partnered with DeVant. In the full partnership, it would be DeVant, John Neville Maskelin, George Cook, and Neville Maskelin. They called this the Maskelin and Cook Provincial Company, and it would include David DeVance Entertainment. Even when DeVant wasn't in the show, it still was listed as David DeVance Entertainment. Now, if I can detour for just a moment away from the show and more to the man, I discovered several paragraphs that I think helped to put well, they helped to put us into his head, the head of David DeVant, the way he thinks of magic and, frankly, its practitioners. It's from the book Magic Made Easy by David DeVant. The same information can also be found in Chapter 9 of his book My Magic Life. And it goes like this. A man can study every work on conjuring or magic which has ever been published. He may take lessons, work hard, and achieve a certain manual dexterity, but at the end of it all, he may still possibly be ignorant of what magic is. His knowledge of secrets will not help him to discover that secret. Magic is an art by means of which a man can exercise a kind of spell over others and persuade them into believing that they have seen some natural law disobeyed. I do not hold the opinion that any man who can get up and do a few tricks, even though he may do them well enough to entertain his audience, is necessarily a conjurer, because it's quite possible that he may be a mere exhibitor of tricks. I regard a conjurer as a man who can hold the attention of his audience by telling them the most impossible little fairy tales and by persuading them into believing that those stories are true by illustrating them with his hands or with any object that may be suitable for the purpose. I want to show that a good actor who has the knowledge of a very few secrets of conjuring can be a very good conjurer, but that a man who has learnt all that can be learnt from books about conjuring, may never be a good conjurer, 
if he be an indifferent actor. He goes on, The presentation of the trick is everything. The little secret round which the performance has been woven is comparatively unimportant. That's the band. I think I agree with most of that, though. I don't agree with the part about the actor having a few secrets can be a good conjurer. Um, there's a lot more to magic, you know, than just the secrets. There's manual skill, speaking ability, acting ability. Of course, the actors will have that. And there's a lot to it. A few secrets doesn't give an actor enough knowledge to become a very good magician unless they have a background in it already or are trained by a professional, in my opinion. Back to the story. In 1904, Maskelyne began alerting his patrons that Egyptian Hall was to be torn down. They would relocate to a new property called St. George's Hall. And upon relocating, he was going to introduce them to something that Maskelyne had only dreamed about, producing his own full-length magic play. And sure enough, Maskelyne was true to his word. The Coming Race was the name of the production, which began at St. George's Hall on January 2nd, 1905, having missed the Christmas rush by a week. The reviews for the play were not so great. Folks went to a Masculine and Cook production to see magic, and this play had very little of that. If that wasn't bad enough, in February of 1905, Masculine's partner, George Cook, passed away. Masculine had gambled heavily on the coming race, but audiences did not take to the full production the same way they did the smaller sketches or playlets. I suppose sometimes they just want to see the trick. Something needed to be done, and done quickly because they were losing a lot of money. David DeVent to the rescue. Masculine needed DeVent in more ways than one. The company was in a financial mess, so part of the agreement was for DeVent to help them out in exchange for partnership in the company. Now, the shows would be produced by Masculine and DeVant. One of the first things they did was swap roles. Masculine went out to play the provinces, as DeVant had been doing, and DeVant now came in to run and perform at St. George's Hall, the new home of mystery. Among the items DeVant brought with him was his mystic kettle. This was a routine that he'd toured the provinces with since 1902 and made a great showing up. It was the old inexhaustible bottle with an updated method and updated-looking device, a tea kettle. Yet he was still able to pour virtually any drink or liquid called for. It was a huge hit then. It's still a huge hit today, especially if you go see Steve Cohen in New York City. Devant also included a routine that he called the Sylph, which was uh, a levitation. He made one change to the routine Rather than have the girl rise from a casket, which was the tradition then, he replaced the casket with a couch, this giving the routine a very modern feel. Now, we always hear of Harry Keller taking things from masculine. Well, here's an example of David DeVant actually getting something from Keller. Back in 1902, DeVant was visiting the United States and saw Harry Keller perform his demon globe trick. This was a ball that would roll down a plank or roll up a plank or go down and stop and then continue, always apparently under the control of the magician. Keller's inspiration was seeing a similar thing done with a giant ball at the circus. But his method was crazy. He used electromagnets and it was complicated. 
Devant instantly saw the potential in this trick and spoke to Keller about it. He asked him if he could take the idea, come up with a better method, and if so, he would share it with Keller. And of course, Keller would give his blessing to Devant to do the effect. Sure enough, David Devant went back to England and developed a much simpler method. He called his version the Gollywog Ball. For some reason, I have always been intrigued by the images of both Keller and Devant presenting this trick, but I believe it has been recreated with, again, possibly a slightly different method by Teller of Penn & Teller, and it's called the Big Red Ball. Teller's routine is far more elaborate and quite frankly, in my opinion, very magical. Next, we have a unique piece called the Problem of Diogenes. This begins with a barrel that's open on both ends. Two sheets of paper and two metal rings are displayed and placed against the barrel and pounded into place. Well, let's put it this way. Um, The first piece of paper is put in and that's pounded and into place and then the barrel is spun around so the audience can see clearly there's no one inside. Then the second piece of paper is placed on and the ring is pounded in place. At this point, a light on a cord is introduced and lowered into the barrel from the bunghole. The illuminated barrel proves no one is inside. The barrel is spun again and the light once again is dropped back inside. This time, a shadow figure begins to appear and breaks through the paper. It is Diogenes himself, the famous Greek philosopher. This is an early version of the shadow box. The trick without a title was a clever piece of marketing as well as a clever illusion. The price of 50 pounds was offered to anyone who could come up with a better name for the illusion, and the winning name was the new page. In this illusion, a long upright box was brought out on stage and showed on all sides. Then the front was open and a fellow dressed as a page boy stepped inside. He was strapped to the inside of the box with metal bands. The page boy remains in a standing position while four ropes are introduced through the four rings in the top of the box. It is then raised several feet in the air. The doors are closed and a small doll dressed like a page boy is introduced. The magician explains that whatever happens to the doll will happen to the page boy. Slowly, the magician turns the doll over in, so he's standing on his head, basically. The doors to the box are opened, and there's the page boy standing on his head, having somehow reversed his position just like the doll. Now, I want to take a break for a moment from the bigger illusions to one that I love from Devant's extensive repertoire, the effect called simply Boy, Girl, and Eggs. The routine is fun and quite hilarious. A hat is shown empty, and yet the magician reaches in and makes an egg appear. This is done over and over and over. Each time one appears, he hands it to a young girl, and she in turn hands the egg to a young boy. He has to hold on to the eggs in his arms, and before long, there are just too many eggs for him to hold on to, and the eggs begin to fall onto the stage and crack open. Hilarity ensues as the boy's predicament increases. This is one of those pieces that I believe won't work for everybody, but surely worked for Devant. Apparently, also worked for Lance Burton on his first network special. There's a hilarious poster that was designed for Devant, and the title 
uh, of the trick is given the egg trick. The poster shows the boy with 30 plus eggs in his arms and one having fallen to the ground. And amazingly, Devant's name is not even on the poster, but yet everyone would know who it was for. The next piece comes from the pages of Our Magic by Neville Maskelin and David Devant. The chapter is titled Chapter 10 with Fish and Letters or The Educated Fish. I simply love this premise. Blocks of wood with letters painted on them are openly dropped into a fishbowl. Four so-called educated fish are introduced and dropped into the bowl. Next, a word is chosen from a newspaper. The magician states that inside there are four educated fish and they will now spell out the chosen word. And one by one, a letter floats up to the top of the water. As it comes up, it's taken and set into a tray until the fish spells out the entire word. Next, we have something called hypotyposis or the magic mirror. The description from Devant's Delightful Delusions, a spectator sees visions of his past and future in a large upright mirror. In the reflection, there appears a devil who changes places with Devant while he is at the spectator's side. I believe this effect is what uh, they based the, uh, the one in the movie The Illusionist with Edward Norton and Jessica Biel, the one that's on stage with the mirror. I think this is what that's based on. Next is an illusion called Biff, the first vanishing motorcycle illusion in history. Here we have a motorcycle and a rider driving into a large wooden crate. The doors are closed and the crate and the entire thing is raised up into the air, Upon the command of the performer, the box falls apart with the slats of wood falling everywhere upon the stage, but leaving an empty framework hanging in the air, the motorcycle and rider have vanished. The final illusion I wish to cover dates back to 1905. It was developed into a sketch or a playlet. The effect is famous, as years later it was recreated for the Broadway show Merlin starring Doug Henning. In this wonderful illusion, we have a woman dressed as a moth who dances around the stage and then suddenly vanishes in full view. The method for the mascot moth was complicated, diabolical, and involved numerous people. It also needed precise timing to execute properly, but it is without a question a beautiful illusion. During his time with the Masculines, David Devant received a great honor. The year was 1906, and a new magic organization was created, the Magic Circle. David Devant became the group's first president. More on this in a little bit. Over the course of the next 10 years, Devant creates an incredible amount of magical material which is shown at St. George's Hall. Things like the homing bells, the magic mirror, the giant's breakfast, the three vases, Beau Bricade, Dino, a lesson in magic, the chocolate soldier, bogey golf, the window of the haunted house, ragtime, and many, many more. Now we come to 1915, June 14th to be specific. This is when David Devant officially retires from the Masculine and Devant Company. Or does he? The truth of the matter is a bit stickier. It turns out that the Masculines and Devant were not exactly getting along. 
Devant preferred the more straightforward approach to magic, as did modern audiences. The Masculines, John Neville, Neville, Archie, and others, preferred the sketches and playlet approach. They were not seeing eye to eye. So the Masculines voted David Devant out. This according to the book The Secret History of Magic by Peter Lamont and Jim Steinmeier. But all was not lost because David Devant was hugely popular at this time, so he went out and spent the next four years touring the variety theaters in Great Britain to enormous success. From the book The Illustrated History of Magic by Milborn Christopher, we have this story. One December night in 1919, during his four-week engagement at the Midlands Theater in Manchester, Devant told the small boy who volunteered for a lesson in magic routine to hold a handkerchief and cut it exactly as he did, just as the magician had done hundreds of times with other children. The boy followed the instructions and shook the handkerchief from side to side. Devant looked at the boy, puzzled why wondered why he was shaking the handkerchief that way, and then he looked in horror at his own trembling hand and quickly brought the feet to a close. This signaled the end of his career. The book Magic by David Price says, Devent was forced to retire in 1920 on account of ill health and never returned to the stage. He was only 52 when he was forced into retirement. In his retirement, he continued to write and give lessons, but in 1936, a particular article that he wrote for the Windsor Magazine caught the attention of the magic circle. Apparently, in the article, Devant exposed some of his own secrets. He did this to entice readers to purchase his latest book, but the magic circle had a standing rule, known as Rule Number 13, and that was to not reveal magic secrets to the public. They contacted Devant to see his side of things and then made their judgment, which read, Dear Mr. Devant, I submitted your letter of December 18th to the council at their last meeting, and after long and careful consideration, it was decided that rule number 13 had undoubtedly been infringed upon by the exposure of magical secrets in your article in the December issue of the Windsor Magazine. The council has no alternative but, with the greatest possible regret, to ask for your resignation. Signed, the Honorary Secretary, William Minns. The organization for which he was their first president now expelled him for exposing his own tricks. Getting back to his illness, what exactly was wrong with him is somewhat difficult to decide. Various books say things like ill health, progressive ill health, a nervous disorder, paralysis agitans. There have been rumors that Devant had actually contracted syphilis, but I can find no documentation other than a mention of it in a Max Maven column from Genie Magazine, October 2004. However, there are two sentences in the book, Paul Daniels and the Story of Magic by John Fisher, that, well, are curious. It reads, After 1920, he, Devant, could no longer perform on stage and was eventually forced to end his days in the Royal Hospital for the Incurables at Putney. Ironically, Modern medication could easily have treated his disease today. 
Well, as there are currently no cures for the disease I think he had, uh, this makes me wonder about the uh, rumored diagnosis. I started to look at the symptoms, and I discovered that the term, while I was doing this, paralysis agitans was an obsolete term. The new word for paralysis agitans is Parkinson's disease. Shortly after my discovery, I found a reference in the book, The Secret History of Magic, which states the same thing, that Devant actually suffered from Parkinson's. For a time, he lived in his own home, but as just stated, he was finally moved to the home for the incurables where he died October 13, 1941. Over the course of his life, he wrote many books, including Magic Made Easy, Secrets of Magic, My Magic Life, Woes of a Magician, Lessons in Magic, and more. And in regards to the magic circle, the incident is part of history, and I wish to shed no amount of shame upon the magic circle. Clearly, whatever issues they had with Devant have more than been cleared up and corrected over time. Though I am not a member, by all accounts, they are a wonderful organization and still are thriving and growing into the 21st century good for the magic circle. October 13th, 2021 is the 80th anniversary of the passing of David Devant. So let's remember him on that day for all the greatness he brought into the world. And let's remember his slogan, all done by kindness, because that really speaks volumes. And that, my friends, is going to do it for this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please like the episode in any way your podcast provider allows. And please tell a friend about the podcast. Please help me grow our audience. Until next time, I'm Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective. Be well and be safe.